17. If you have your ESV Pew Bible, you can find that on page 876. 876 in your ESV Pew Bible. And I'm reading from verse 7. Chapter 17, verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this opportunity to gather together to worship you. O Lord, to sing your praises, for you are infinitely worthy of all of the of our greatest songs, O Lord, our greatest compositions, and more importantly, O Lord, the joy wellspring from within our heart, bursting forth, O Lord, in shouts of praise. O Lord, we cannot praise you enough, and you, O Lord, are worthy to be magnified. And Lord, we thank you also for this opportunity now to uh, peek into your word and to uh, oh, Lord, dissect this text before us, this very text with you spoke with your own uh, words, O oh Lord, and was recorded for us uh, by the uh, um, author Luke, O oh Lord, as he researched and conducted interviews to determine your teachings and understand your ministry. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have this recorded for us and help us to understand these words, help us to grasp what you're teaching us, O Lord. Illuminate the Bible to us, and may our hearts and our minds, uh, O Lord, be tender to receive from you instruction to understand what it is to be a servant, to serve in your kingdom. Humble us, O Lord God, we ask today. And Lord, I ask that you would anoint my mind, my lips, my heart. Enable me, Holy Spirit, for without you, I am helpless. Grant me the grace to preach your word in Christ's name. Amen. Pardon me one moment. We've been having problems with the internet, and so my sermon notes, which are on my iPad, are not being downloaded. Um, just give me one moment. I thought it was.
We're almost there, guys. Be patient with me. Good. I think so. Thank you for your patience. Technology, friend or foe. Today we have a unique opportunity to ordain three men to the diaconate. This is a real blessing and a gift. Going back to the earliest days of the church in the book of Acts, men were selected, men full of the Holy Spirit and of good works, and they were set apart by the church, consecrated to the work of ministry. In Acts chapter 6, we recall that these men were set apart, these seven men were set apart for the purpose of serving tables, of distributing food to the widows. It was a menial task, but these men were up for it, and it was to allow the apostles to establish themselves and to set themselves apart for the ministry of the word and for prayer and for the spiritual aspects of the church. And at the same time, these seven men went on to do great ministry. We know Stephen spoke before the Sanhedrin and became the first martyr of the church was full of wisdom confounding and debating with the men in, from Cilicia who had come down to Jerusalem. We also know that um, uh, Philip became an evangelist. Uh, we've seen him going out in Acts chapter uh, 7 and 8, and he goes out into Samaria and he preaches the gospel and he reaches those who have never heard. Uh, he preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, bringing the first to bring the, the gospel beyond the borders of Palestine. And then later in the book of Acts, we see that he has grown into a full-time evangelism ministry. His daughters are prophetesses. And so from within the diaconate, we see that there is a great blessing and that God raises up men and women to serve in that position. But when we talk about the diaconate, we cannot uh, um, ignore the basic premise of what it means to be a deacon because the word deacon, a diakonos in Greek, literally means to serve. And it's where it's translated often in the New Testament as the word minister or to minister or to serve. And it carries the concept literally of waiting on tables, but it is the word that we often associate with serving in the local church. And while deacons do have this call to serve and to serve both the physical needs and the spiritual needs in assisting the elders in the day-to-day -day functions of the church, ultimately we serve God. All of our services rendered unto God. The question then remains, if we have five deacons set apart, as a brother said to me, what a blessing to have five deacons, does that exempt all of us from serving? Does that mean now, well, okay, we have five deacons, two elders, ah, there's really nothing for me to do. 
I'm going to sit back in the pew and just relax. God forbid. God forbid that is our attitude. And so with that said, I chose this passage and I wanted to preach a sermon on the topic of serving. And what does it mean to be a servant? We don't like that word servant. It conjures up all kinds of negative images. And if we look at the actual Greek word that's used in the New Testament for servant, it's doulos, and the word is translated slave. And so when we think of slavery, when we think of servanthood, uh, particularly in the context uh, as it existed in the Roman Empire, but within, even with modern colonial slavery, it conjures up these negative emotions and feelings. And the last thing we want to think of ourselves is as slaves or servants. Yet the New Testament does not shy away from using this word to describe who we are. I think as Americans, we prefer to be served than to serve others. We are entitled. We're privileged. We demand that people serve and bow before our needs. It's an amazing thing because in the last two years of COVID, there's been this big shift in terms of employment. As you notice, a lot of, of, of people have quit their jobs and don't want to work, and there's various reasons for that. But the greatest uh, sector that's got hit is the service sector, right? Jobs where you serve other people. People just don't want to do it no more. Go try to go to a restaurant and get good service today or, or to go to uh, a gas station and get good service I got my mechanic in Yorktown. He tells me he can't hire nobody to pump gas. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to serve. We want to be served. And yet, the dynamic of the kingdom of God is the very opposite. What kind of people are we as Christians? Are we just like the rest of the world? Do we get irritated when people ask favors from us? The colloquial phrase, do you think I'm your servant? Or do we joyfully and willfully serve others, recognizing that by serving others, we're serving God? So I want to explore the meaning and concept of servanthood. Clearly in our passage, the Lord describes Christians as his servants. And when we've done all that we were supposed to do, all that we were commanded, God doesn't need to thank us. We're not giving anything to God that he needs. But we should say we're unworthy servants. We're only doing what we're supposed to do. Oh, if that would be the attitude of us, how much we'd see the church grow. All right, let's break this down. First, let's look at, go back to creation and understand that from the very beginning, God created humanity. It's in our DNA. It's our purpose. It's the meaning of life to serve him. That was what we created for. This is a creation ordinance, and it is part of the cultural mandate of humanity. And this answers the basic question. What do we exist for? What is our purpose? Why are we here? And the basic answer is, you know, if you go back to the Westminster Confession, we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, how do we glorify God? We glorify God by serving him. Our service to God is expressed in many different ways. It is expressed primarily through worship, 
When Adam and Eve were created in God's image and placed in the garden, they were given specific tasks. Be fruitful and multiply. That's the easy part, right? The second part is tend to the garden, keep the garden. There was actual work involved. There was vocational ministry. But the temple itself, or I should say the Garden of Eden itself, represented and was a temple complex. It, it was a meeting place where, where man met with God. See, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, is they, they were expelled from God's presence. God's presence was manifest in a unique way in the garden. It was, a, it, was, it was a temple complex, and it was there where man and God had fellowship together. In fact, if you look into the, uh, into the Old Testament back in Exodus, in the, when God instructs Moses to design the tabernacle, the designs are reminiscent of Eden. Uh, the idea of, uh, of, of olives and, and, and uh, different fruits growing on the tapestries, these are all to point man back. The cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant was to point man back to Eden. God was providing a way to restore fellowship with humanity through the sacrificial system instituted through the Levites. It ultimately points to Christ. And so man in the garden is fruitful, he multiplies, he tends the garden, and he rules over creation as God's vice regent. But the problem is, the fall came into the picture, and sin corrupted everything. So the purpose for which we exist to serve God, to obey his commandments, to rule over creation, to flourish the human race, and to, uh, um, and, to t- and to worship him and enjoy him forever is corrupted and perverted through sin. Paul explains this corruption in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they become fools. Isn't that really what hum- humanity is? It's interesting because the original um, in King James says professing to be wise. Uh, when I went to college, I had a lot of professors and they all were atheists. They were all ungodly. And I used to think of this. Oh, there they are professing to be wise. They're all fools. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, this is, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's forever blessed. Amen. So once sin comes into the picture, it corrupts and distorts the human call and the human vocation and our human dignity and the image of God in us to worship the creature, the creature or the created order rather than the creator. And thus we have idolatry. And that's exactly the corruption. So instead of serving God, we serve idols. We've been going through the book of Judges and, and this theme comes up over and over. It says, Israel forsook the Lord and they served the Baals. They served Asherah. They served the gods of the Canaanites. Their service, rather than being rendered to God in fidelity and obedience and worship, was now shifted to idols that resembled the created order. Baal resembled a bull. He was a fertility god of, of Canaan. And they bowed at his altar. But you see, 
we continue, humanity continues to worship the creature rather than the creator. I guess our greatest uh, uh, idol of the 21st century is man himself. We are, we are obsessed with the worship of other people. We idolize human beings who are successful and have great accomplishments and who achieve a lot. We idolize our political heroes or we idolize some of the wealthiest and most successful people in the world. We idolize celebrities and we idolize, even in the church, we idolize our celebrity pastors and theologians. And we put more confidence in man than we do in God. And ultimately, we repay God the most by worshiping the greatest idol of all, and that is self. We don't have to go far. We look right in the mirror. You go on someone's Instagram or Facebook page, and it's a shrine to self. It's really what it is. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, spoke about the idolatry that expresses itself in different ways. He says, no one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. For either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, the word serve comes in here. What does it mean to serve money? Well, Jesus is identifying one of the chief idols that we really struggle with. If you look at the grand scope of the human experience, the three chief idols that we deal with are glory and gold and girls, right? I guess if you're a girl, it could be men. But it it's really comes down to wealth, success, lust, greed, and of course, glory. All of these things. See, money is a great idol because it gives us the comforts and pleasures and the securities of this life. The more wealth you have, the more you can enjoy life. You know, they, there's no saying money can't bring happiness, but it sure does help. In other words, the more money you have, it will make your life more easy and more comfortable, but it doesn't bring true satisfaction. Only Christ can do that. And so the, the problem is that many people serve money. They serve what money can bring them. They look to money and wealth and success to bless them, not realizing that money is a tool it's just a tool that we use to exchange goods and currency. It's a tool that's used to serve others and serve God. You see, instead of serving God and using money as a tool, we serve money and use God and we use others as tools. Christ warned us, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot have a divided heart. Paul in his epistle to the Philippians says in Philippians 3.17 through 19, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things why do I bring this up because this brings us to the next aspect their God is their belly these are people who live and exist for pleasure everything is about the next experience the next thrill the next 
pleasure. The ne- it's, it's hedonism. And what Paul's saying, those who profess to know Christ and live as if, as if uh, pleasure is all that matters, it's incompatible with the gospel. They're enemies of the gospel. Now, clearly, he's not referring to Christians here, but apostate Christians, those who have left the faith. He says, I tell you with tears. Paul examine, expands this like, concept of having a, your belly as your God because that's what it really talks about. Your belly represents your appetite, your carnal appetite. I want more. I want to satisfy it. I need to satiate my carnal appetite. And that could express itself through sexual immorality, through materialism. It could express itself through gambling. It could express itself through uh, entertainment and an obsession with entertainment or an obsession with, with video games or whatever it is, whatever satiates your carnal appetite. If you're given over to it, your God is your belly. And if it's food, if you're just thinking about food all day and just glut, uh, one big glutton, your God is your, be- your belly. Your belly is your God. Paul warned against such people in Romans 16, 18. He says for, and here's the key, here's the key here, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. So you could either serve God or serve your appetites or serve money, serve yourself. You see, the reason why serve is used here is because humanity in our fallen state, in our natural condition, can do nothing but serve sin. Because the word serve, as I said before, is derivative of being a slave. And Christ tells us that we are all slaves to sin. Romans chapter 8. Paul says, reiterates Romans 6, John chapter 8 and Romans 6. We are slaves to sin. That's our natural condition. We cannot do anything but serve sin. Although it is our natural duty to serve God, the person apart from Christ can do nothing but serve sin. We are slaves. We're in bondage to our corrupt nature. And therefore, pleasure and greed and glory are the only things we can serve. See, God designed us with a nature to worship we were designed and created to serve him, to worship him, and enjoy him forever. The corruption comes when we replace God with everything else. That's idolatry. But the good thing is this, right? God intervened. God saved us. He gave us new hearts, new minds. And that's the important thing to understand here, that Christ did not leave us in our natural state. He didn't leave us wallowing in the mire, but he rescued us, he redeemed us, and set us free. And so as Christians now, we have a a new mandate, and we're reminded that we're servants of God. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. What, did it, what does Mark 10.45 tell us? That Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Christ the Messiah, our Lord and our King, 
demonstrated to us that the character of God is to serve. You see, ultimately, God serves us every day. God gives to us liberally. He is our benefactor. He ministers to our needs. And the manifestation of God in the flesh did not come as a king demanding that people bow before him and serve him, although he was entitled to it, but humbled himself to the point and he took the form of a servant. Christ in his entire ministry served others. This should come no surprise because throughout the Old Testament, we're filled with examples of servants of God. It was said in Psalm 105 too that Abraham was the servant of God. Moses was called a faithful servant in all of God's household, Numbers 12.7. In 2 Samuel 7.8, David was considered the servant of God. All these great men of God knew who they were. They were servants in the household of God. God called Israel my servant. And of course, all the messianic prophecies that pointed to Christ in the book of Isaiah which contains the greatest number of messianic prophecies, refers to Christ as the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42, 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And a bruised reed he will not break in a fainting Faintly burning wick he will not quench, and he will faithfully bring forth justice. Did not Christ claim this very text of himself? The servant of the Lord. You see, God created man in, in his image. And in being created in God's image, we were created to be servants of the Lord. That was warped, it was corrupted. And as a result, we have inversely served ourselves, demanded that others serve us, and we serve the creature. We serve that which is created rather than the creator. Christ came as the second Adam to set things right. (laughs) Christ came to establish what true humanity looks like. In Christ, we see what Adam would have looked like had he not fallen. Christ establishes that true humanity, true human dignity, is not in dominion or, or, or ruling or oppressing people, but serving others. He gave his life as a many, for the many. See, Christ's service is ultimately bound up with the cross. His service was expressed in its full manifestation on Calvary when he died and gave his life for you and me. What greater service could one give than to give of their own life? Think about that. That's true service. We call that a hero, correct? When we see a policeman or a fireman give their lives to save and rescue someone else, We say they're a hero. That's true service to mankind. So woe gave greater service. Who's the greatest hero in the world but Jesus Christ? All right, let's get into what 
Christian service looks like now. Now that we establish the biblical precedence for serving God, let's ask ourselves, what does service look like? Again, I want to reiterate that in the New Testament, all of the authors of the New Testament see themselves as servants, slaves of God. The word doulos is used repeatedly from Paul, from Peter, from James, from Jude, who all refer to themselves as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand what that means, though. What does it mean that we're a slave of Jesus Christ? First of all, it means that you do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. You're a possession of Christ. You are not an autonomous being. Let me repeat that. You are not an autonomous being. You do not have the right to live your life the way you want to. You do not have freedom. That's offensive, isn't it? But it's true. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. You were redeemed and set free from the slavery of sin, but now you are called into the servitude of God. You've been redeemed and purchased, and we are the possession and property of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we're free, but you're not free to sin. You're not free to rebel against him. You're not free to live as you please. We live at the pleasure of Christ. We live for the pleasure of Christ. We exist for his pleasure. We are his servants. Furthermore, we are servants of righteousness. We are servants of righteousness. See, at one time, you existed for nothing but sin. You existed, you were a servant of sin. You, your whole life was bound up in, in, in exalting sin, in exalting pleasure, in exalting idolatry. But now, it's been changed. Notice what Paul says in Romans 6, 15. What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? That's the question. Okay, we're under grace. Does that mean we're free to sin now and do whatever we want? Paul says, may it never be. Emphatically, may it never be. God forbid. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God. One of those big buts in the Bible, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That parenthetical statement is important there. Paul is using an analogy. He's using human terms to send home the point. You served sin, now you serve God. You serve righteousness. For he says, as once you presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Our 
We exist for one purpose. That is to glorify God, to serve him, and to grow in holiness. We are servants of righteousness, of obedience, of God's law. Not lawlessness. While we talked about earlier in the confession, the grace of God that enables us, even though we fall a hundred times, we must acknowledge and recognize and understand that God has called us to be submissive slaves to him. We're to submit to his will. We're to obey him. I don't know how else I can characterize that. John MacArthur, in his book, Slave, writes this. We often hear that God loves people unconditionally and wants people to be all they could be. He wants to fulfill every hope, desire, and dream personal fulfillment, personal gratification, and personal ambition. These all have become part of the language of evangelical Christianity. A part of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Likening him to a personal trainer or a personal assistant. Many churchgoers refer to Christ as their personal savior who's eager to do their bidding and to help them on their quest of self-satisfaction and individual accomplishment. He goes on to say nothing could be more opposite in the New Testament. He is the master. He is the owner. We're his possession. He is the king, the Lord, the son of God. We are his subordinates. We are his subjects. We are his slaves. Let that sink in. Slaves have no freedom. Their rights have been forfeited. Their rights, their entitlements and privileges are granted to them by their master. We don't do as we please. We ask permission. But remember, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he did not himself do. I say that to go back a few steps. He is the servant of the Lord. Remember what the Lord said? I do nothing outside the Father's will. The Father and I are one. I always do what's pleasing to the Father. A servant is not greater than his master. And if it was enough for Christ to be the servant of the Lord... And it is contentment for us to be his servants. You want to know what true greatness is in the kingdom of God? Well, I know what true greatness is. You're a master theologian. Graduate Trinity Divinity Seminary. And you will truly be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Be a church planter and plant 20 churches. You are truly great in the kingdom of God. Be a celebrity preacher who does tours and conferences all over the country. You are truly one of the great ones. You're laughing, but that's what we think. That's how we look at it, don't we? Right? Jesus tells us true greatness in the kingdom is very different. He says in Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called them, to him and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
The greatest people in the kingdom of God are the greatest servants in the kingdom of God. They're the people behind the scenes doing the hard work, giving of themselves sacrificially to the kingdom of God and for the good of others and who do not think about themselves but put others before themselves. Those are the greatest ones in the kingdom of God. So as we celebrate this deacon ordination today, let's ask ourselves, what are some ways we can serve? I'm going to give you some very practical instructions. Number one, you can serve the church by getting here early. I almost think I'm asking something impossible of the church. Oh, Bob, that's too difficult. Please don't ask me that. You have no idea. You can all get to work on time every day. In rush hour, in traffic, at the wee hours of the morning, is it asking too much to come to church early? Well, why should I come to church early? There's a lot to do around here. The brothers who've been set apart for the diaconate have been here early. There is a tremendous amount of work to set up. We think well, this all just happens. We get up here and we, I preach and we sing and it's just easy. No, there's work involved. You can find something to do. Maybe you have an idea to contribute to the well-being. Maybe bring breakfast and encourage others to come early. Be part of the prayer meeting. That's serving others. That's serving the benefit of the church. It's serving the good of the church. It's serving the welfare of the church. It's serving Christ. Stay late. Instead of trying to be the first one out the door to get out of here and go home and watch the football game, why don't you hang out a while? Help clean up. Help break down. Something so simple. If you eat downstairs, throw away your plate. I'm, this may sound infantile, but you would not believe how many people leave their trash on the table so someone else can serve them. Who's the greater one here, the servant or the one being served? Christ showed us the way. So the Son of Man came to serve and not be served. These are simple little things. Maybe someone needs a ride to church. They don't have a car. Maybe someone needs a place to stay. It's hospitality. Everything you have is from God. Your home is from God. Your car is from God. Whatever finances and wealth you have is from God. Use it to serve Him. Secondly, you've all been gifted by God to serve. There is no such thing as a Christian who has not been gifted by the Holy Spirit. Go read Romans 12. Go read 1 Corinthians 12 when you go home. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. We have different members of the body, but one body in Christ. And every person has a gift. We all have a part to play. If you're a member of a local church, God, didn't, your gift is not to sit and warm the pew. Your gift is to serve. Do you have a musical talent? Do you have a technological talent? We have a website. There are a lot of young people today that have, that have an expertise in, in, in web design. I can't do it. We have a lot of folks that can do it. We have folks that can serve. Maybe you're gifted with little kids. Serve in the children's ministry. Maybe you're gifted, maybe you're gifted with evangelism. Go out and serve. Preach the gospel. Maybe your, your gift is, is encouragement. Call people and encourage them. Get on the phone. We don't all have the same gifts. And we're not all multi-gifted. I have certain gifts, but there's a lot of things I'm very weak in. 
And I thank God for five deacons and an elder. I can't do it by myself. And ultimately, serving God is fundamental to the basic command of loving one another. You see, if you leave your plate on the table and I go back to simple, it's simple because I, 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 I don't get it sometimes. It's, it's, a, it's a simple way of demonstrating love for your fellow brothers and sisters. Galatians 5, 13 through 15 says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, right? Again, you're free, but you're not free to sin. But through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. There's so many different ways we can serve. There are so many different things we can do. The closet is a disaster downstairs. Speak to one of the deacons and come in and volunteer one day and help clean it up. We have a lot of literature that needs to be sorted out. We have people in the church that may have physical needs. Find out what they are. Identify them with compassion ministry. Don't wait. You know, you know what a good servant is? I'll tell you what a good servant is. And I know because I was a waiter for about seven years in the restaurant business. I waited on tables. I learned a lot about service from that. I tell you, I think everybody should work in a restaurant for a period of time. There's nothing like working in a restaurant because it teaches you humility and it teaches you service. Service with a smile. Even to the most disgusting customers, you got to serve with a smile. I guess in any service industry, you have to learn that, right? The customer's always right. It was very good for my own training for ministry. But one thing I learned that what makes a good waiter in a restaurant is a waiter who anticipates the need before you ask for it. You ever notice when you're sitting at your table and your glass of water has been empty for like 30 minutes and you're, you're like dying of thirst and the waiter walks by you 10 times? You got to ask for a cup of water, right? And then they wonder why they get a bad tip. Please fill my cup. I'm here. I'm depending on you to serve my table. Anticipating the needs of others before they ask for them means that we are able to know people in our church, know who they are, identify their needs, anticipate the needs, and instead of asking, did you like more water? Obviously, just fill the cup. Does that make sense? Finally, so we see that God, serving God is bound up in serving one another. Finally, my final point is that we serve God with joy. That's the whole purpose here. You know, going back to Luke 17, we could say we're all unworthy servants. We only did what our duty was. And, and, and it is very true. We are bound by duty to serve God. That means you serve him even when you don't feel like it. I remember the, the old thing I used to think when I was a young Christian. I don't feel like going to church today. And I guess because I don't feel like going and I'm not feeling it. I'm going to stay home because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Right? There'd be nothing more hypocritical than me going to church and I don't feel it. Do you go to work when you don't feel like it? Do you stay home? 
There's a sense of duty. I must go to work. Those of you who work out in the gym or who train, do you not go when you don't feel like it? No, you mess up your whole routine. True discipline is doing what is your duty even when you don't feel like it. It's getting up at, at 8 in the morning, set your clock a little early and get, in, get to church early, even if I feel tired because it's my duty to go to church one day a week and give God my very best, not, not my half-hearted worship. God doesn't deserve second best. He deserves your very best, even when you don't feel like it. And God doesn't have to thank you. You're not doing God any favors. That's why it says in Romans 12:1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Giving yourself fully to God and to his work. That, that's, that's just required of you. And then sex, so, so we see the one aspect of serving God out of duty, but we also serve God out of delight. You know why? Because we realize that ultimately any service we give to him is enabled by him to begin with. We can't give him nothing that he already hasn't given us. Notice what Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17.25. He says, God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind Life and breath and everything. The pagans thought that they were serving the needs of the gods. God doesn't need anything from you. He needs nothing from me. He's already given us everything. So that makes serving him a delight. Your life, your breath, your well-being, everything you have is a gift from the hands of the maker. You know, sometimes we act like ungrateful, spoiled brat kids instead of truly being thankful for the goodness of God that he's shown to us. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10, 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You can serve him with joy because he gives you the strength to do it. Notice, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Then we could say, like the psalmist, then we can serve the Lord with gladness of heart, Psalm 102. Let me conclude then. Who are we? We are the servants of God. We are slaves. We belong to another. You have no rights. Your rights are bound up in the rights of the master, the king. We exist and live for his goodwill and pleasure. Let us manifest joy and thankfulness in the goodness of God our Savior, serving him with joy, with delight. It's not a burden. If serving God is a burden, then I think you have a bigger issue on your hand.
you need to be born again. You need a new heart. If your heart's so stony that serving God is, is, is a nuisance to you, that serving God is, 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 is inconvenient for you, then you need to be born again. You need to look to Christ and recognize how what an awful sinner you are and recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot obtain heaven. You are doomed to eternal judgment because your sins damn you. God is just, he's our judge, he's our creator, and he will judge us by his law. And every human being who has fallen short of his law will suffer eternal judgment. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this world, bore our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead so that every human being who looks to him in faith and trusts in him will be saved. You need to be saved. You need to be born again. You need a new heart. And I implore you, if you feel serving God as a burden, get on your knees, beg God to give you a new heart. Look to Jesus Christ, because he's the only one who could do it. And then when you're born again, you will serve God with the greatest of joy. I'll never forget in the one passage where it was the immoral woman who washed the feet of Jesus and the Pharisees said, how dare you let that woman wash your feet? He said, he who is forgiven much loves much. When you realize how much you've been forgiven, when you realize how much grace God has shown to you, you will love and serve him much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would indeed bless it to our hearts. Help us to have a servant spirit, every one of us, and understand who are we are and our identity in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you doing the ordination afterwards? Are you doing the ordination after? Yeah, one, we'll sing in the middle. Just keep it around. Just keep it around, yeah. Please stand as we sing once more.